So tonight I'd like to um, talk, uh, we've been, had sort of had this, uh, what, uh, kind of beautiful day of, uh, with Mary starting off with instructions about, uh, so precisely about dealing with the body and uh, doing the body scan today, and then uh, Howie doing the metta with really uh, extending loving kindness to the body. So I would like to talk about the body this evening, uh, our connection and our disconnection. Uh, more than anything, probably I'm talking about um, a split that's been there. Uh, why we uh, uh, need this practice so much. Um, before I start, I just wanted to um, kind of acknowledge one of the things I do when I start out uh, talk is I try to look at everybody in the room. And um, even with just for a fraction of a second, uh, simply because um, each of you has this potential uh, to wake up. Uh, it's an incredible capacity. It's an individual, very personal thing uh, to know that uh, you have that in yourself right now. Uh, and so I. From this place of speaking, I honor that in you uh, as something that um, uh, is a, a, a remarkable, remarkable, mysterious thing. So about two weeks ago, I wrote a poem, and I'd like to uh, um, read it to you and uh, use it as a, a means of uh, speaking this evening. Uh, I called it the split, Nama Rupa, which uh, in Pali means mind-body. Skin, bone, muscle, blood, you who in your youth I betrayed, abandoning you for my stories, ideas, dreams. Leaving you in some dumpster in the Haight-Ashbury, hoping no one would notice. But you, like a sly fox, shadowed me to India, barefooted, hair matted and greasy, bowels bubbling and groveling, waiting again and again to be noticed. Finally, Sitting down, you, right next to me, shyly making us one. First you scolded me, tearing at my knees and crushing my back and bringing me down so my face was on your floor. But today, we have made friends, Nama, mind, and Rupa, body. We walk fearlessly towards the precipice. So this story begins, um, your story begins. Uh, I remember when I was a, a, a little kid, and in my innocence, when uh, my body and my heart and, and uh, my mind were uh, really together. Uh, they enjoyed uh, what they experienced here. 
And I was in a, a boarding school in Switzerland where I was sent when I was five years old. And uh, I remember uh, downstairs in this uh, one sort of um, down in the basement where we kept our, our ski boots and skis and all of our stuff in this large Swiss chalet. And there was a desk and I used to go and I would hide under the desk and I would cry. Uh, because uh, I was afraid, I was lonely. Uh, uh, it was a big world. Uh, and at that point, I began to recognize a story that you all tell yourselves. You know, that somehow a uh, being in this body, uh, that uh, there is pain here. And that uh, somehow, if I could ease myself out and live uh, in something that I was developing and learning about called my mind, uh, that it would be easier, quite simple, you know, uh, easy enough. Uh, I've told this story, uh, but it's, it's actually an archetypical story that uh, like the child under the desk, or maybe you were uh, in a closet or under your um, blankets or uh, somewhere, there was some place where uh, it became strong. And you found that uh, there was an, maybe an easier place to go, to separate out and not uh, experience or feel that. In this poem I read, uh, leaving you in some dumpster in the Haight-Ashbury, hoping no one would notice, but you like a sly fox. So first I want to tell the story about the Haight in the 60s when I came to the States uh, from Switzerland. And um, in 66, the first kind of, they were the thing called human beings, and they were, uh, you know, sort of what, the Grateful Dead and the uh, Jefferson Airplane and... Um, Oh, I've forgotten what other groups were there. Um, and I went to one of these. <laughs> anyway, they say if you remember the 60s, you weren't, you weren't there. A silver messenger <laughs> service, right. And sort of, uh, you know, people dancing around naked and, you know, things like that. Uh, and I went and actually somebody from the Grateful Dead actually handed me a, a bunch of acid and I, I took it. And uh, sort of had a wonderful day, just sort of uh, lost in the, milieu of uh, music and uh, mind, mind something. Uh, <laughs> Altering substances. Altering substances. <laughs> um, and that evening, um, uh, early evening, uh, everyone got in this car and we were going to go back. And I, I had just been in the States for a short time, so I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd kind of lived in Paris and London and then come to the States. And where to come to but the hate. Um, so these people got in this car, and, and uh, there wasn't any more room in the car. Everybody was kind of stuffed in. So uh, this girl said, well, why don't you get in the trunk? So I got in the trunk, and they shut the trunk, and then uh, the car left, and I was happily in the back of the trunk, and uh, they drove back to the hate. And then, um, but the only thing is, this girl didn't get in the car. And everybody was pretty ripped, so nobody uh, knew I was in the trunk. 
And so they all got there, and I was kind of spaced out, and they all got out and left. Because I shut the doors, and I was left in the trunk. And um, I really began to, uh, I go off on kind of my journey into my mind and uh, trip on the, uh, on the substances I had consumed. And then I would come back. And I would realize I was in the trunk of this car. And I didn't want to be there. You know? And uh, this was the place I lived. And at this time, I happened to be in the trunk of a car. And it really uh, exemplified that split uh, that begins to happen. Uh, and this was a kind of, a, for me, uh, a really huge piece. Because I remember sometime in the middle of the night, uh, someone came along and, and um, it was one, of, I'd forgotten, it was like an old sort of kind of 50s car. It just had a button you pushed in the, uh, the trunk went up and, and uh, someone let me out uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, I'd knocked on the trunk and they let me out. And um, I'd gone off, but, but for three months I didn't want to be inside a building. And so I slept out in Golden Gate Park and I wouldn't go inside a building uh, um, living on the street. Um, And one of the things I had learned uh, uh, sometime after that, I kind of uh, sort of came down a little bit, not much, and was able to get my life together and go to India. Um, but one of the things was I had been taught, and this is a cultural thing, uh, that somehow I had come on a spiritual journey to, uh, to America, to San Francisco, to the hate. Uh, looking for something. Um, but it was interesting because what I had been taught uh, in, in my culture was that somehow there was this split between mind and body. And that somehow, in this case, it was spirit, body and spirit. The body was uh, not okay. And that somehow spirit was out there somewhere. Uh, and that uh, I had to uh, search uh, out there to find it. And it was interesting because there were many practices when I first came to India where you would, um, there was fasting. Uh, there's ways that, that actually the Buddha spent six years um, doing austerity practices, which uh, take, took him uh, really beyond it in, in every way. And yet, um, I remember uh, uh, one of my teachers, this was a Tibetan teacher when I uh, was first uh, in Asia in the, in the late 60s, um, said, oh, you, you're a little confused about this. Uh, he said, oh, you have to go through the body, not out of the body. Uh, it's been a really fallacy uh, of uh, what uh, you expected. You know. And for me, I think more than anything, uh, there may be a thing called, uh, also you, some of you may know this, it's, it's, I consider it like a spiritual bypassing. Um, 
And that was because my childhood and uh, the community, uh, actually I lacked all those things uh, and uh, a healthy relationship uh, around me. Uh, so it was a bypass and suddenly I was said, oh, you have to point back and you're going to have to start where you are. And where I was, was uh, uh, owning, uh, began to own this body. Uh, which meant I had to own the feelings uh, that I had originally run away from uh, to be here and to uh, go on this uh, journey. There's a great, um, uh, uh, what was his name, Jim Henson, who was the Muppet... um, who was kind of what the writer of the kind of Muppets for TV and stuff. And he did this movie called The Labyrinth. Uh, do any of you know? It's a kid's movie. If you had kids, you would have probably seen it. Uh, but it's really interesting because it has this girl, Sarah. And Sarah, um, is the beginning of the movie, she's standing uh, in um, this kind of field with flowers and this kind of thing. And... Uh, there's an owl there, and um, let's see if I can uh, remember the uh, words here. <clears throat> I had to write them down. And she's reciting a poem to the owl. Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the goblin city to take back the child which you have stolen. And at one point, she forgets the next line, and she loses kind of her um, strength. And she has to pick up the book and read from it. And the next line is, you have no power over us. And then at that moment, uh, there is uh, the uh, bell goes off in the town, and it's seven o'clock. And suddenly she realizes she's forgotten uh, that she was to babysit her young uh, uh, stepbrother. And so she goes running home. and uh, gets there uh, to, uh, first of all, she gets there and there's a feeling of shame and fear. And uh, she's told, well, she has to go and take care of uh, this uh, stepbrother. She goes into the room and she's quite angry and upset. And at that point, Uh, because of her shame and anger and fear, she gets up and leaves the room and leaves the child crying who's hollering and crying and carrying on. She leaves that child. And as she walks out of that room and closes the door, she hears a big fuss in the room. And she opens the door. And there is, uh, it's actually uh, David Bowie in tights, but (laughs) it's um, 
the, um, the Goblin King. And he says, here, I'll give you this crystal. And uh, this crystal will bring you all your dreams. This crystal of the mind will bring you all the dreams you need. And at that, she refuses. And she knows there's something else. She knows there's something else. She doesn't know what, but she knows there's something else. And at that point, she turns and he says, well, the only way to get the child is to go to the castle on the other side of the goblin city through the labyrinth. And so she must uh, take this journey as we take our journey through this labyrinth of uh, our old stories, uh, our old uh, hurts and fears, uh, our uh, longings, uh, our wanting it to be a certain way. And as a courageous child that Sarah is, uh, she uh, gets through the labyrinth to the other side. Um, and it's interesting because that child really uh, represents uh, this young part of us, the part that's uh, innocent, that's connected in uh, your body and heart and mind. Uh, they're not separate. It's really, in a sense, uh, a wholeness. And we have to reclaim that. And so, so much of what we're doing here is uh, just really starting in a very simple way of reclaiming. And sometimes, of course, uh, as I wrote my little poem there, uh, sometimes the beginning of the reclaiming uh, is kind of hard because it's something we've been avoiding through our stories. And uh, um, it's like if we had this uh, wonderful castle, and this castle had beautiful gardens and uh, beautiful rooms with remarkable things in it. And we had gone up to this little room up on the top floor in the kind of west wing. And it didn't have any windows. But it had a, it had a TV and a VCR. And then on the wall were all these tapes of stories. One side of the story tape was uh, things to be. And the other was things that have happened. And we sit there and we play those tapes. And we think, oh, this is life. Ah, But this is what the Goblin King was actually offering to Sarah, which was the crystal of the mind, which allowed you to play those stories, but not to experience life not what is actually given. And so we have this, um, what? Uh, This time that you've set out for yourself, uh, kind of in the labyrinth, 
to begin to notice what is the crystal uh, that the goblin king offers you. and how that has seduced you for so many eons. And there is what you experience uh, in your wholeness, which is where uh, you uh, give yourself permission uh, to feel the discomfort, which also allows you uh, to feel the uh, pleasantness and the joy of being here. Uh, you can't separate them out. Uh, and so this is just maybe all we're doing here is uh, beginning to discern between that crystal of mind and uh, uh, using the body and uh, our feelings as a way to uh, reach some kind of wholeness, some kind of uh, place in the center of our experience that you can call your Buddha nature or uh, your intuitive self or uh, uh, there are many names you could put on it. Um, but it is a, something that experiences and knows uh, the very uh, simple and um, and it chooses. You know, it does the choosing. I think we uh, try so hard sometimes to analytically uh, struggle to make choices. And I wonder sometimes it's, if it isn't simpler than that, than just allowing yourself to drop down. And it's somewhere in yourself, somewhere deep in yourself, uh, you, tr- you do know every one of you, in every way, you know. Um, And so here you are, giving yourself permission uh, to uh, play with the goblin (laughs) king and at the same time uh, touch and allow this innocence to be reclaimed uh, some way. And uh, I don't know another way to do it, but to just sit here and uh, simply feel uh, the body and notice how much of the time you go off. You know? uh, so it's a kind of uh, reclaiming and making friends. This is from the Dharmapada. Those who continually make effort to direct their awareness towards the body, who abstain from unwholesome actions and strive to do what should be done, such people, aware with full understanding, are freed from their defilements. Pretty simple who direct their awareness towards their bodies. Uh, uh, Who really practice uh, what uh, harmlessness. You you come here and uh, I think of one of the 
beauties of Buddhist practice is its advocation of harmlessness. Uh, but where does the harmlessness start with first? <clears throat> Who does it start with, I should say? This is from Carl Jung. That I feed the hungry, forgive an insult, and love my enemy. These are great virtues. But what I should discover, that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of offenders are all within me, and that I stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? What then? I remember there was a, um, I was in Nepal and, and uh, I, I guess I'd been there about a year. And uh, my teacher at the time, Tutan Yeshi, um, they were going up to near Mount Everest, uh, which was about, uh, I don't know, um, well, from Kathmandu a walk, maybe a couple weeks. Um, and they, they flew partway up. And I had to uh, walk alone. At the time, I had been doing a lot of uh, sort of purification practices, mantras and prostration, full prostrations, and, and uh, a practice called Nundra. And uh, decided that um, I would go up too. Uh, but there was no room on the plane for me. So I said, well, I'll walk. That's fine. So I remember that year, I think there were, th- somebody told me anyway, there were 365 uh, trekking permits given that year, and of course now there are thousands. So it wasn't there weren't a lot of people in this at that time uh, going up, and this was in the Everest region. And I remember I left Kathmandu Valley, and and, and at the time, um, well, a lot of you may know our Seltram Alion. Anyway, they had given me all these kind of packages and stuff to carry, so I had all this stuff on my back. I wasn't carrying very much stuff, but being a good bodhisattva, I packed up. <laughs> everybody else's stuff to carry up the mountain. And the first day out, if any of you have ever done trekking in Nepal, it is, I mean, these are very young mountains. And some of some of the, the sheer kind of uh, straight upness. And it was all terraced and stepped up. And I remember going out and I walked. And I'd asked Tupanyeshi, I said, well, can you give me some kind of mantra, some kind of magic, you know, so I'm protected and you know, I don't fall into the uh, hands of the goblin king and all that sort of thing, you know. And uh, he had said, well, just keep your attention in your feet. You know, just keep your attention in your feet. And you have all the practices you need. And I remember going out and taking on that first hill. And I was, I was young. I was in pretty good shape. And I got about three quarters of the way up that thing, and it was probably four, four o'clock in the afternoon, and I said, I just cried, and I cried. And also, I realized I was leaving, and I wasn't going to see anybody for a long time, and, and no one spoke at that time, didn't speak English. And actually, my porter that I got, he didn't speak English, and he didn't even speak Nepali. Uh, 
And uh, so we had a, we did, made quite a mess on the way up. Um, but I remember that, and I actually, it was my first uh, kind of, uh, I walked for two months. And it was the first time that, and being alone, and not having somebody, it was sort of like a retreat for me, because uh, uh, this Sherpa that I was with didn't speak, uh, he didn't speak Nepali, didn't speak English or anything, uh, except for uh, Tibetan. So uh, um, it was uh, a really a journey of being alone. And how much uh, it became so apparent and healing to uh, just like the walking meditation, just bring my attention back again and again and again. You know, it's no more than that, and it's everything. No more than that, and it's everything. So I've been talking about this piece about how uh, we actually come in whole uh, through uh, what li- just life circumstances. Uh, we uh, what disembody, disassociate, um, uh, and then we begin this journey of uh, coming back uh, into ourselves. And in that is reclaiming uh, parts. Um, And as we begin to reclaim these parts, uh, there is um, a very profound piece of Dharma that um, begins uh, to grow in one. And I think it's when finally you see the Goblin King and see the crystal, and it's not, the crystal is simply a tool. Uh, the mind, um, what exactly is it? You know, it moves at the speed of light. Uh, it uh, helps us uh, be safe uh, in the world we live in. Uh, it creates a fixed identity uh, from past information, and it supposes future uh, situations, uh, and basically it's there protecting the organism. Um, but what's interesting I find about it is that uh, in doing that it creates a very uh, solid uh, and hard thing. And what I see that's so marvelous about the practice of staying in the body is what do you know about this body? What do you know about it? If the mind can make an ID up and it can hold it and fix it, uh, it's kind of permanent in that way. But if you take the attention and you place it anywhere at any time in the body, what do you know? What's its reality? It is changing. It's an ever-flux. It's a river of flow of these uh, vibrations of tingling of, of, the, of the elements uh, as they swirl and move and change uh, in experience. 
And so it becomes a place where we can always check in to this very, uh, what, important uh, truth uh, that it is, uh, probably the word anicca, uh, it's impermanent. It is uh, simply change. Uh, and from that, that gives us a new uh, place to identify what this crystal uh, goblin story is telling us. Uh, we can go, oh, uh, oh, what is this? Is this me? Uh, what is it? Or is it just uh, a moment in time to fix something? So we began to use this as a place to keep checking into actually the truth. The truth of impermanence. The truth that there is no solid and fixed identity. It is this river of information, this flow that keeps, 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 keeps changing. There is no way there can ever be anything but that. And there is a loveliness uh, Alan Watts called it what the um, yeah the, the wisdom of insecurity. Uh, simple. We get caught in um, the pleasant and the unpleasant, uh, and um, thinking that the pleasant is what brings you happiness, and that the unpleasant it is what brings you. Uh, unhappiness. Uh, it's the Buddha's biggest uh, what uh, gift to you is that even though there's such a charge on pleasantness and such a charge on unpleasantness, uh, and we try to create our whole realities around the charges, that he is actually pointing at something that doesn't have a charge. It's actually empty. Uh, and yet, in any moment, in, any, in a fraction of a second, right here, right now, uh, you have a choice to connect uh, uh, in the pleasant or unpleasantness, or even neutral, that um, and it doesn't have a charge. It's hard, it's hard to experience and see. Is that there's freedom right here. Yeah. And it's uh, kind of in between the cracks of the world, of what we know and see and who we think we are. Uh, and maybe it's just fractions of a second. But as we have strengthened this muscle of bringing our attention back to the present, uh, it's actually from that place of innocence, of wholeness, uh, that we can, uh, I won't say see, but experience uh, this freedom. So I'd like to just uh, to conclude here, I want to read this again. Um. Skin, bone, 
muscle, blood. You who in your youth I betrayed, abandon you for my stories, ideas, dreams, leaving you in some dumpster in the Haight-Ashbury, hoping no one would notice. But you, like a sly fox, shadowed me to India, barefooted, hair matted and greasy, bowels bubbling and gurgling, waiting again and again to be noticed. Finally, sitting down, you right next to me, shyly, making us one. First you scolded me, tearing at my knees and crushing my back and bringing me down so my face was on your, was on your floor. But today, we have made friends, Nama mind and Rupa body. We walk fearlessly towards the great precipice. So I hope uh, that uh, each of you uh, can find this kind of true voice in yourself, this place uh, that is kind of uh, this innocence that uh, can trust the moment as it is, uh, pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't matter. Uh, That there is this place of deep trust Uh, which is not dependent on any outer factor. Uh, It is something that um, uh, you have always had. And that uh, your journey through the labyrinth uh, and your seeing and knowing that the crystal of mind is not going to bring you the answers. But getting out of the way and experiencing living in the present uh, through the body, uh, with the mind connected to it, uh, allows there to be an open heart, uh, a heart that doesn't uh, shy away from the suffering. Uh, uh, around you. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.